message this morning. And this morning we are looking at uh, Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and we'll look at verses 4 through to 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 says, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, commit this time to him, and let's thank him once again for the word that we have, which will bless us, I'm sure. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word this morning and another opportunity to look into it and to be taught from it. And we pray that your spirit will be teaching us this morning your ways, that he would give us grace that we need to understand your word, the wisdom to apply it in our lives, that we might grow into the image of that perfect begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we seek to understand your ways and who we are in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Over the past four weeks, uh, over the past month, essentially we've uh, focused on the transfiguration of Christ. Uh, on that mountain, um, with his uh, three beloved disciples, Peter, James and John, who had the privilege of seeing him glorified uh, in front of their very eyes. Um, they were, uh, as we saw, the witnesses of this moment. They were the three witnesses uh, that, were, that would come down from that mountain. And then after his resurrection, after he had died and after he had been resurrected from the dead, they were to witness to everyone else about what they had seen uh, on that mountain that day, as well as being witnesses to him and that who he was to the entire world, which they did very faithfully. Along with these three witnesses that Jesus brought up to him, uh, with him on that mountain, there were three others who were witnesses on that day. Um, the first was God the Father, who said that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased when he came down in a cloud. Um, and the other two witnesses who we, who we have looked at in a little bit of detail were Moses and Elijah. And these were prophets who had lived already hundreds of years before uh, Jesus was, uh, came into the world. And uh, they were uh, quite influential uh, prophets and uh, people in Israel's history. These two, as we have seen, represented the law and the prophets um, and that contains the entire, or, or uh, in, in essence, actually uh, signifies the entire Old Testament of the Bible that we have in our hands today. These two witnesses um, um, witness that Jesus was not only justified by the law, in other words, he was completely innocent of the law, and he was the first person in history to be perfectly innocent. Um, not from the very first people that were created, Adam and Eve, Till that point, had anyone ever kept the law perfectly, even, even if they only had one? Um, but he lived his entire life perfect. Uh, he never broke one law. He, didn't do, he never did anything wrong, but he did always what his father uh, commanded him to do. Uh, the other one was the prophet. So he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Uh, and the, the prophets uh, testified that he was the Messiah who was promised by God to be sent into the world, that he was sent into the world to save uh, sinners from their sin. Now, unfortunately, Israel was not ready to receive her king. She was not ready to receive the Messiah. That She did not recognize the Messiah. And instead, what they did is they killed the messenger who was uh, sent to prepare the way for him. And we know that person to be John the Baptist. Um, but they also ended up killing their Messiah as well. And they, they essentially handed him over to Romans, to Gentiles, and they uh, crucified him or killed him as a common criminal. Today we are examining um, the future witness of these same two individuals. So we're looking at um, uh, Moses and Elijah and their future um, uh, involvement with this world again. 
uh, we will examine a passage, uh, the passage that Paul read for us this morning. And we'll see that they're, they're destined, these two individuals, Moses and Elijah, are destined to return again uh, to this world and to be witnesses again. But this time, they will not only be witnesses that Jesus Christ is the, the Savior, that he's Lord and Savior, but they will be witnessing against one who is impersonating the Savior or who, seek, who will seek to impersonate Christ. And this is the one we call Antichrist. The passage we read just before was written by a prophet called Malachi, some 400 years before Jesus was born. His prophecy concerns what he calls the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Um, and while the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and his life as the perfect Lamb of God was glorious, um, the one who would allow himself to be taken captive and crucified on the cross you couldn't really describe it as a dreadful day when Jesus came into the world. In fact, the angels sang uh, when Jesus came into the world uh, and declared peace to all. Um, the difference, though, is when the second coming of Christ occurs, it will be a dreadful day for the world. It will be in the midst of a dreadful time. And it will be a dreadful uh, uh, occurrence because of man's rebellion against God. Uh, when Jesus was being arrested uh, as part of a plot to have him killed by the Romans, by the, uh, by the hierarchy in Jerusalem, uh, the Israeli um, uh, uh, leaders, um, they came uh, to him uh, seeking to, um, to, to take him captive and to bring, in, bring him to, uh, to trial. Um, the disciples were with Jesus at that stage and, and the, the scriptures tell us that, that Peter grabbed the sword and he was about to start defending Jesus. In fact, he ended up cutting off a, uh, an ear of one of the servants of the high priest there. And Jesus uh, said to Peter, put that sword away, uh, which he did. So why didn't Jesus allow um, Peter to, to defend him, to, to, to hold back these people who had come to, to take him away. Well, Matthew chapter 26, verse 53 says, Jesus makes something very plain. He says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Um, while well, Jesus had the power to command the angels to come, and to defend him and to wipe out those who would seek to kill him, he didn't. He came as a lamb and he came uh, willing to be taken without any force, um, without any um, uh, hassle. He came as a lamb uh, to be brought to the slaughter, the Bible says, a lamb that opens on its mouth. Uh, it doesn't bleed. A lamb can't really defend itself very well. And Jesus came and his life epitomized that type of, of life. Um, but the Bible says that his second coming will be dramatically different. The Bible says that though he came first as a lamb into this world and he came and allowed himself to be, uh, to be crucified, um, the Bible says that when he returns, he will not be a lamb but he will come as a lion. Now, I'm not sure uh, if any of you have ever been close to a lion, um, but you probably would not want to be ever be close to a lion because a lion can do you great damage. And that's the fear that the world will have when he returns. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 19 with me as we now compare this, as we examine this stark contrast between the way Jesus came in his first coming and the way he will come in his second coming. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says, and this is uh, the Apostle John, the same one who went on top of that mountain and saw Jesus transfigured in front of him along with Peter and James. He writes this, these things. And he says, And I saw heaven open. This is, this is John seeing a prophecy. He's seeing something that's happening in the future, which still hasn't happened, Okay. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness uh, he, he doth judge and make war. 
His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You'd agree with me that this image of Jesus, having clothes dipped in blood, look at this picture. He has clothes dipped in blood. He is followed by the armies of heaven. As a short a sword which he's going to smite the nations with, he's going to rule with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the wine press. And if you just the, the picture here, that when people used to make wine, they used to tread it with their feet. Some people still do today, but the picture is someone who's squashing grapes, um, and that will be the image of his return to this earth. He will not come back as a meek and gentle lamb. He will come back as a lion seeking to bring judgment to the world. And it's this day that Moses and Elijah will come back beforehand or before this time. And they re- the reason they will come back and the reason that those same two individuals that were on that mountain will return um, is because they will come to prepare the way for him. Um, the scriptures teach that Elijah and Moses will come at a critical time in the world. They'll come at a time when there is a person who will present himself as the Christ, as the promised one, who will will present himself as a, a statesman in the world. He will present himself as the one who will solve the enmity between the between Israel and the and its Arab neighbors that he will find a way to, to allow Israel to, to build their temple once again, um, that he will promise peace, that he will come with great power, and that he will offer protection. Um, but the reason he allows them to rebuild their temple, the Bible says, is not for their benefit, nor for God's, nor for the glory of God, but for himself. Because the Bible then teaches that after the temple is rebuilt in some future time, and they begin to offer sacrifices again there. And this is in Jerusalem we're speaking about. Yes, the same Jerusalem that exists today. He will have a dramatic turnaround. And he will declare at that point, when everything is ready, he will declare that he is God himself and will demand to be worshipped. He will seat himself in the temple, declaring that he is higher than every other God. And the Apostle Paul puts it in a very special way. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with me as Paul describes what this person is going to be like. You see, the, the coming of Moses and Elijah is coming at this particular time. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself, above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the person whom Moses and Elijah, when they come back to this world, will testify against. It is at this point in future history that these two witnesses appear again on the scene. And where do they appear? Well, they appear exactly where, well, roughly where they were when they came the first time. 
Let's see what the book of Revelation has to say about them. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. As we begin to have a look at the description that the Bible has about these two witnesses, and though it doesn't mention them by name here, <clears throat> it will become evident fairly soon who these two people are. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 says, And I will give power, this is God speaking, unto my two witnesses. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So here we are introduced to the two witnesses in a future time. When three and a half years will have transpired in a seven year period known as a tribulation. So the tribulation period, the Bible says, is a seven year period. The first three and a half years have already transpired. The Jews have been able to rebuild their temple. We are now at the midpoint of the tribulation period, three and a half years. In the midpoint of these seven years, the Antichrist reveals his true nature. And God sends these two witnesses who he will empower with abilities that only he can give. And the Bible describes them here as two olive trees and two candlesticks um, And that's because they are the enduring testimony of these two prophets. Israel is is, is pictured in the Bible as an olive tree. Now, these two individuals are Jews. They are Jewish. They are Israelites. And we we know that um, it says that they are the two olive trees. And then it says that they are also the two candlesticks. Well, the light they give to the world is the perfect witness of the law and the prophets the books of moses and the prophets so these two individuals though they are real individuals as we have seen on the man of transfiguration represent the law and the prophets they are an enduring testimony about who the messiah is and about god's love for mankind they are two israelites but they also represent the two testimonies from god himself in a book about his love for us and the plan of salvation that he has offered to us through our Saviour, Jesus Christ, whom he sent into the world. So notice how long they prophesy for. So they prophesy for 1,260 days, which is exactly three and a half years, according to a Jewish calendar, which has 30 days in each month. We are then given an amazing description of their power, that they have been given... um, that further points their identities as Moses and Elijah. So Revelation chapter 11 verse 5 says, And if any man will hurt them, so if anyone tries to attack them or kill them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now let's compare these powers to the ones already exhibited by Moses and Elijah in the past, which directly tells us who they are. Now it says that fire is going to proceed out of their mouth. It looks like they're like dragons, these guys. They're going to have fire which comes out of their mouth, which consumes their enemies. What's interesting about Moses and Elijah is they both exhibited um, the power or the ability to call down or rain God's fire upon their enemies. Um, In one particular example, when certain families rebelled against Moses and the Lord and God, they were judged by God. And not only did the earth open up and swallow a certain number of them, but fire went out from God as well and devoured the ones who weren't swallowed up by the earth. If you turn to Numbers chapter 16, verse 32, you will notice that as a result of their rebellion against God and Moses in particular, these people were judged with fire. Numbers 16, verse 32, it says, And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. So it literally, the earth opened up and swallowed up the family of Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit 
and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. That's a pretty dramatic scene. That's a pretty, that's a pretty strong judgment of God upon a, uh, upon a family that was rebelling against uh, Moses and the Lord. But look at verse 34. It says, And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. So we see that Moses was pretty familiar with the judgment of God using fire. When Moses was on the mountain, there was a fire that came down upon the mountain as well. When they traveled through the wilderness, when Israel traveled through the wilderness, they were led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. And Elijah was no different. Elijah, um, when he was being pursued by King Ahaziah, um, who sent a company of 50 men and a leader to actually capture him and bring him back um, to him. The Bible says that he called down fire which consumed them. Set the second, turn to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll see. Not just once, but he did this twice. Um, when they came, when they sent 50 uh, armed guards or soldiers to come and, and capture him. 2 Kings 1 9 says, Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty. And he and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on top of a hill. And he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So um both Moses and Elijah are familiar with um, God's use of fire to judge and to protect his own. In fact, uh, Elijah, and most of you would know this story, when he was um, in competition with over 300 priests of Baal to see who the real God was, whether it was Baal or whether it was God, um, a competition was set up. And most of you would know that story that the, the prophets of Baal, more than 300 of them, were crying out from morning till night, wanting, calling down fire from Baal to burn up their sacrifice, um, but nothing happened. And then uh, when it was time for uh, Elijah to call down fire, he simply asked God to call down fire and it consumed everything. So the Lord has used both Moses and Elijah when judging his people. And, and that demonstrated that he was the one true God. Now, in the future, the Antichrist, when they come back, will seek um, to have everyone believe that he is literally God in the flesh, that he is the Christ, that no one else compares to him, and that he should be worshipped. In fact, he's going to have, as Jesus had uh, John the Baptist and as Elijah will come to prepare the way for, for Jesus' second coming, the Bible says that even the Antichrist will have a prophet who will prepare for him, that he will be telling people to worship him and to actually um, follow what he says because he's the promised one who fulfills the, the, this, um, this promise that seems to be not only present in the Bible, but is also present in other religions. Most of you may know, or some of you may know, that not only does um, uh, the Christians waiting for a Messiah, but the Hindus, the Buddhists, and the Muslims are waiting for a Messiah. The interesting thing, though, when you read the descriptions of, for example, the um, the the Messiah in the in the in the Quran. As compared to the Bible, it seems to be diametrically opposite to what the Bible's description of the Messiah is. Um, and so we're going to see, and the Bible says that, that there's a false one that will come. In fact, the, the, the New Ages and the, the Buddhists are waiting for a Lord Maitreya to come who will unite all the religions of the world under him. The Muslims believe exactly the same. The difference is that they don't necessarily believe that 
Jesus will come back um, as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as we do. So there is a problem here. Um, and it's in this particular case that an Antichrist rises up, calling himself the Messiah, who will seek to unite the religions under him. He will have a false prophet who will testify for him. Um, and he will present himself as God in the flesh. The Bible says that when God sends Moses and Elijah again, that he will try to destroy them, that he will seek to have them killed. He will send people to go and, uh, and do them in, but he won't be able to, to, uh, to kill them for three and a half years. They will be there in Jerusalem testifying against him and testifying for Jesus Christ. They will be a thorn, literally two thorns in his side. Um, and this will be because God has given them the ability to judge those who come against them with fire. It's interesting uh, also that during Christ's ministry upon the earth, if you recall in Scripture, um, um, that when Jesus was, uh, had gone into uh, one of the cities of the Samaritans, and they had rejected him. And they said, no, we don't want you. Uh, we don't recognize you. Um, as they were leaving, his disciples turned to him and said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire upon them and to have them destroyed? And Jesus' response to them is, you don't know what spirit you are. My, um, my job is not to kill people. My job is to call people to repentance and life. So there was an understanding even among Jesus' disciples that Jesus even had that power and ability, but he did not use it uh, during his days on the earth. So Jesus forbade them to do any such thing. But the next thing we find out about the, the ability of these people is not just fire, but in verse 6, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 6, it says, These have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Now, the shut heaven doesn't mean you're shutting heaven where God lives. What it's literally saying is you're shut the ability of heaven to reign upon the earth. Um, that's what it means. So that's that, that phrase is uh, an idiom that's, that refers to when heavens are shut, it doesn't rain and, which, and it causes a drought. So these two men have the ability to stop it from raining during the time that they are witnessing upon the earth. They can say, no, it's not going to rain. And they may say it's not going to rain for as long as they like. They may even say it's not going to rain for three and a half years and cause a drought upon the earth or upon a, upon a particular area uh, area of, of time as well. So Elijah, interestingly enough, had done this very same thing in his life, um, which was a judgment of God and a witness against false gods and showing them that God had the power. You see, um, when Elijah was around, um, there was a King Ahab, and he had turned to the worship of Baal along with his wife and, the, and had dragged along with him much of Israel um, to worship Baal, who is a fertility god. He's a god of thunder. He is a god of rain. So they believed and they were convinced that if they prayed to Baal, that Baal would give them good crops because he would send rain upon the earth. And when Elijah prayed that it would not rain, guess what? That whole scenario, that whole belief system had to come crashing down because Baal didn't have control of the weather. God had control of the weather. And Baal could not do one thing. And as much as they sacrificed to him and prayed to him, Baal was shown to be impotent. He was shown to be useless as a god. So um, the, the, uh, James uh, writes about uh, this when he says in James 5.17, he says, um, Elias was a, a man subject to, to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, just get that for a moment. How long um, are Moses and Elijah going to be witnessing for when they come back again in the future? Well, the Bible says they're, they're going to be there for three and a half years. In during Elijah's lifetime on the earth, some 2,000 plus years ago now, 3,000 years ago, um, Elijah prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it didn't rain for how long? Three and a half years. Is that a coincidence? Well, I don't think so. I think the idea is that it's telling us exactly who this person is. Um, and this person is definitely Elijah. 
Then we have this last part which says that they have the power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. I'm not sure if you remember, but there was a fellow called Moses who, who was one, the one that touched the waters of Egypt uh, with the staff and they turned into blood. And he was also responsible for the unleashing of other plagues uh, upon Egypt, which brought Pharaoh to his knees. Now, these examples should be more than enough um, to identify who these future two witnesses are. But in addition to these, we also have that the way they returned to heaven. So do you remember when they came and witnessed uh, on top of that mountain with the disciples? The Bible says um, that a cloud came over them. You know, when Peter had this uh, fantastic idea, when they, were, when they were, coming, were going to leave, Peter had a great idea about, you know, building three tabernacles and getting them to stay longer, you know, um, and, and this cloud came down upon them. Uh, and God said, no, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. The cloud vanishes, disappears, and so do Moses and Elijah. And the Bible says that in the same way, in Revelation eleven twelve, 12, uh, it says, they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. They, called, they got called back up again, and they ascended up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So they even come to the earth and return in a similar type of way. The other thing that we find very unusual um, or interesting about Elijah and Moses and why these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses is the way their lives uh, went or their lives ended in the Old Testament. Elijah, the Bible says, didn't die at all, but was taken up by a fiery chariot in a whirlwind straight up into heaven. I'll read that verse for you in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. It says, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, if you want to write it down. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them asunder. This is Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah didn't even die. Uh, and Moses... The way he died, it was very strange indeed. You see, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34 with me, we'll just have a bit of an, a read a bit of an account of the last day or days of Moses and how he passed away. So Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 5 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Now if you remember... Moses was the fellow who rescued Israel from Egypt, uh, was with them for 40 years in the wilderness as they disobeyed God, and then came all the way up to the promised land. Um, but God didn't let him enter because he had failed God in a particular area. Um, he had sinned in a particular area. And God says, I'm not going to let you go in. So the Bible says that he died in the land of Moab, which was just over the border according to the word of the Lord, in verse 5. Deuteronomy 34, 6 then says, And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Bethpeel. But no man knoweth of his sepulchre until this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Now, what does that mean? So, let's just, get, let's just line these things up. The Bible says that, as Israel was about to enter into that land, God brings him up to a mountain and says, let me show you the entire uh, place that I'm going to give your people. He says, but you're not going to go in. Um, so he shows him, doesn't let him cross over. Um, and Moses says there, it's, God says that he, he died there. He died at that particular point. The interesting point, though, is who was with Moses when he died? Well, no one except for God. The Bible also says, who buried Moses? Well, the Bible simply says that he buried Moses. And who was with Moses? Well, God was with Moses. So God buried Moses in a secret place that no one has ever been able to find. Where is the grave? Well, no one knows. How frail was Moses? I know most of you, you know, when we, we think about death, we think of a frail person. Um, and if you'd reached 120 years of age, you'd probably look pretty worn out and, uh, and frail. But the Bible says when it comes to when it came to Moses that at 120 years old his eye was not dim which means 
he had perfect vision, nor his natural force abated, which means his strength was the same as when he was younger. So if he's as fit as a Mallee bull, as we say here in Australia, and his eyesight was perfect, what is going on? Well, I suspect that God simply said to him, time to switch off. And he died there. God buries him in a secret location. Now, why is God burying him in a secret location? Why didn't God allow his people to bury him and give him the due honour? That, that, that probably should have been due to him, as every other um, statesman or every other famous person uh, is given. Now, God says, no, 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 I'm going to bury him separately. He is the only man in history who God buried by himself. And he's also the only man in history whom Satan disputed about when Satan was disputing about his body. It seems as if Satan wanted to get his hands on this body and he was upset about something so that he was actually arguing with Michael the Archangel. And Jude gives us a bit of a glimpse about this argument. Jude chapter 1 verse 9 describes an argument that takes place between Michael the Archangel and the devil. And the devil is disputing about something. He's upset about something. And in Jude 1.9 it says, Yet Michael the Archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now what are Michael and... What's Michael the Archangel and the devil disputing about the body of Moses for? Well, there may be a very specific reason for this. Um, we don't hear about any other dispute like this ever happening. We don't hear about anything like this happening about any other individual, nor is there a dispute happening in the courts, in God's courts in heaven um, about this that we, we are privy to, apart from this specific thing. But the account of Moses' death and the work that God maybe had planned for him still to do may be a very good reason why the devil was in contention here. He wanted the, probably the body for himself. Because um, if you look at Revelation chapter 11, verse, verse 7, they have come to this earth and they have a testimony against who? Against the Antichrist, against the devil. And he probably knows, the devil, see, the devil knows some scripture. In fact, the devil knows more scripture than probably most people. Um, for those of you who might think the devil hates to read the Bible, he knows it probably fairly well. Uh, he may not know it all, uh, but he knows it fairly well. And he, he uses it to his advantage. Um, is there an example of this? Yes, there is. When the devil sought to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, when Jesus was 40 days in that wilderness, he tried to use scripture. He twisted it, um, but he tried to use scripture against Jesus, and Jesus rightfully used scripture to argue back, and he won the case. Um, you'll also notice that the devil used scripture or God's words in from the very beginning. Um, in the garden, God actually... Um, God actually uh, had given them a one command. The devil took that command and twisted it to his own benefit. So the devil will try to uh, use scripture to his own benefit. And in this particular case, he probably understood that there are possibly two coming back. or he was, he was at least suspicious that God was somehow doing something with Moses' that may have hindered him or may hinder him sometime in the future. Uh, let's continue. So we have the ability to, to judge with fire. We have the ability of the plagues. We have um, the strange ways in which Moses and Elijah both uh, uh, either died or didn't die during their lifetimes on the earth. Uh, let's continue, though, because I think it's clear enough that these Two individuals are the same that came and gave witness to Jesus on that mountain um, in Jerusalem before. Revelation chapter 11 verse 7 says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them.
Now, we're going to be looking at overcoming them and killing them next week. But I want to focus on and finish on this first phrase in this verse today. Before they were overcome by the beast, and we'll look at who the beast is next week as well. The scriptures tell us that they finish their testimony. So when they shall have finished their testimony, which means they, they weren't stopped from, from uh, finishing their testimony. The devil didn't kill them before God wanted it or before God allowed it. No, they got a chance to finish, to do three and a half years of testifying against the false prophet, against the, 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 the Antichrist and against the devil and for Jesus. Okay, um, They get to finish that testimony, a testimony of three and a half years. And what is this testimony? Well, it's surely compatible with the testimony they gave about Jesus on that mountain with the two with the three disciples they spoke about his death they spoke about the purpose of his death they spoke about how that death lined up with the prophecies of scripture how his death was an atonement or a sacrifice that was worthy as the lamb of god um, that sac- that satisfied the justice of god um, i'm sure they explained those things to the actual uh, disciples there on that mountain uh, and what was the purpose of their testimony um, in these coming days? What is, what's going to be the purpose of it? Well, essentially it's to fulfill what we read at the beginning of this sermon today. It was to fulfill the scriptures written by Malachi. If you want to turn back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 with me, we'll understand exactly what the purpose of their testimony was. You see, it says they finished it, they completed it. And what's that testimony? It says in Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Their job was to cause Israel to remember the law of Moses, to remind them how God had saved them from their bondage in Egypt, to remind them about their identity. And there still is a people who are called Jews and Israelites today. They will come to remind them that the dreadful day of the Lord is close at hand and that they need to prepare themselves. Do you remember what, 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 uh, what John the Baptist's job was in the coming of, before the coming of Jesus? He says, repent and prepare for the kingdom of God is at hand. Get your hearts ready for this. Remember he said, make every valley uh, high, make every uh, hill low, uh, make the pathway of our God smooth. That wasn't about as I've mentioned already, it wasn't about a landscaping. This was about preparing the heart for the coming of God. Now, these two will prepare and will be for three and a half years, which is, mind you, almost the same time that Jesus had. Three, Jesus' ministry was three years on this, uh, on this world. These guys are there for three and a half years sharing the gospel with the world, but aimed at the people of God, Israel. To remind them, look at the scriptures, go back to Moses, look at the prophets, what they say. He's coming. And the prophets already told you, and the book of Daniel told you about the Antichrist who would rise up as well. They're going to see the plagues that these guys do. They're going to see water turn to blood. They're going to see fire coming down and, and devouring people. They're going to see droughts being caused And they're going to recognize these two as Moses and Elijah. And when they become convinced that these two are Moses and Elijah, because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. You see, the, the Jews were looking for a sign. That's why they kept on asking Jesus, show us a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus, because of their unbelief, said, you know what? Apart from the many miracles that he did, and even when they doubted him, he said, well, look, I'm raising people from the dead. The blind see, the lepers are cleansed, the lame walk. 
there's your, um, there's your sign. They didn't accept those signs. It says they're still looking for a sign. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a sign, and that sign will be the sign of Jonah. And he was speaking about this, the greatest sign that he would give them was that he would rise again on the third day, even after they had him killed. But the future of Moses and Elijah, you see, it's now been 2,000 years, and the Jews have essentially, not all of them, but majority of them, have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They're still looking for a Messiah. They're still looking for these signs. And the Bible says that when the Antichrist comes, he will come with many signs and lying wonders. And they will begin to look to him and begin to believe he, that he might be the Messiah because they haven't understood the word of God. And here come these two. And these two, this Antichrist, is not going to be able to deal with. He won't be able to kill them. He won't be able to, to stop their plagues from coming on the earth. And Israel's going to look at them and say, hang on a sec, if you're the Messiah and you're doing these wonders, how come you can't deal with these guys? Why are these guys doing the same signs as Elijah, Elijah and Moses were doing and they're testifying against you? And it says in Malachi that Elijah shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Does this mean that their focus will be to mend broken relationships between their fathers and, between fathers and children in the world? Well, no, because if this were the case, there are plenty of other broken relationships in this world that need mending outside of these relationships, outside of just fathers and children. There are plenty of other broken relationships in the world What's it talking about then? This speaks about the return of Israel both now and in the future. The children. The children of the prophets. The children of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Turning again to the faith of their fathers. To cherish once again the faith that was recorded for us in the word of God. Which they have rejected now in, in the New Testament. These fathers include Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, King David, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, and so on and so on. Um, these are the fathers. And these are the fathers who have been recorded in the, the word of God. These are the fathers to whom God has made promises to. These are the fathers who have the faith. And we see, we will see, a attorney again of the children to the fathers the children of israel to the fathers you know we see uh, today in israel we see a people of israel progressively becoming unmoored from its foundations and history it's turning away from the word of god it's turning away from the what we classify as the old testament more and more and turning to new age philosophies and turning to the world's wisdom People are becoming more and more separated from the Bible and alien to its teachings. If the people in Jesus' time were not mature enough and not knowledgeable enough in God's word to recognize him when he first came, they are even more blind today. But in the last days, the Bible says, in those last seven years before the return of Jesus, the Bible says that the preaching of Moses and Elijah for those three and a half years, will literally turn back the hearts of these children, the children of Israel, back to their fathers. They will literally bring the fathers back to the children. They'll bring Moses and Elijah, the fathers, back to their own children to reach out to them and draw them back to the Lord. That this is true is brought out in, in, in a number of scriptures. Moses had a similar problem. Do you remember? When God, had, God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to the people of Israel and I'm going, to, I'm going to use you to save them. Do you remember Israel had been captive and had been in Egypt in a foreign land for some 400 years? They forgot a lot of things. And they needed to be reminded about who he was. 
In, if you turn back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, Moses has this, very, this, this, this question of God. It says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, so Moses, God had asked Moses to go back on his behalf. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What's his name? What shall I say unto them? And in verse 14, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, thou shalt, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord, that's Jehovah God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So God says, you want to know what my name is? He knew They knew his name. It was Jehovah. Okay, um, But he says, you want to know the, what name, in what, what na- what's the name of this God that you're coming uh, in? He says, tell him I am that I am. I just am. And that's the name that Jesus calls himself. In a dispute with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when, they, when he said uh, to them um, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, which means Abraham was both alive when Jesus came, even though he had perished uh, many years before, but he had rejoiced to see his day. They said to him, well, how, how, can, you, how can Abraham have rejoiced to see your day if you're, only, if you're less than 50 years old? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. So God used, Jesus used the exact phrase that God had told Moses to tell Israel about who he was. Um, the Apostle Peter, so, so God is saying, the God of your, the, the, tell them the God of your fathers has sent you, Moses. You know, when, uh, when Peter was preaching in the New Testament, now we'll flip from the old to the new, um, when he preached after Jesus had died, after he'd risen again from the grave and after he ascended into heaven, he was preaching to people and he was going around healing people. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, um, he had healed someone. He'd healed a person who couldn't walk. He just picked them up by the hand and away you go. And they marveled at it. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 12, he said that when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, he said, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? Why are you looking at us for? As though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, whom he was determined to let go. The God of our fathers, Peter saying, and when Moses and Elijah will return once again, they will look to the people of Israel because they're going to be in Jerusalem, in Israel, the same Israel that's there today. They will turn to the people that are there, those who know the word of God, and even those who, who have maybe turned away from it, and they will say, the God of our fathers has sent us to you. And so their ministry will be to turn the hearts of the Jewish people back to the faith and the hearts of their own fathers, to learn to respect again, to seek the truth from the Lord. Both of these prophets were called to this mission in their previous lives, but their ministry will also have an effect upon the fathers to fulfill their roles too. Notice it says the other way as well. It'll turn, it'll bring the children back to the fathers, but the fathers, the ones who are who are the, the meant to be the spiritual guides, not only for their own people, but within their own families. And men, you, you have a responsibility if you have a family to guide your family, to be the, the, the foundation for them, to, to, to lead them into the truth. There is a great responsibility. The Bible says that they, they will also, their teachings and their prophecy will also call the fathers and help them to understand the importance of, of bringing their own children to the faith and will help them to see how important it is to their children. They won't let them just go off to believe whatever they want to believe. They'll help them to see the truth 
to teach them about the knowledge of God, about his truth, to teach their children about the love of God. Once again, they will look to the faith of their fathers and they will, they will seek to give those truths to their children. And those fathers will now also be the apostles. Those three that went up on that mountain, you know, Peter, James and John, they will now be the fathers also of the Jewish people. So rather than rejecting the truth from their fathers as old and out of date, their desire will be to learn once again from their fathers about who God is and what he has done through Jesus, his son. They will once again embrace the precious word of God for their lives and identity. Jesus put the same thing in slightly different, a different way in Matthew. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 verse 10. Because Jesus puts it in a different way. But it's so perfect. The word is so perfect when you look at it. In Matthew chapter 17 verse 10. It says, And the disciples asked him, saying, when, Why then, say the scribes, that Elias must first come? And in verse 11, Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. You know, Malachi puts it in a, puts it in a way where he says that the hearts of the, of the fathers, bring the hearts of the children to the fathers and the, and the fathers to the children. Jesus wraps it up with one word. He says he shall restore all things. And Jesus confirms that to his disciples. That restoration will be the restoration of the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. But the main point here is that the Jews will once again be restored to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Son. Or as Paul illustrates it, they will then be grafted back into the vine, back into the tree of life, in Jesus Christ himself. You see, the Apostle Paul says that, um, if, you, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 11, verse 23 with me, Romans chapter 11, verse 23, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul describes it this way. And I think it's very important for us to understand as a church, the position of Israel today, the role of Moses and Elijah in the future and the coming judgment of God upon the earth. That the second coming of Christ will not be a day of, of rejoicing for much of the world, but it will be a day of judgment. But look at the position we are now in. Okay, We are now. We have, as Gentiles, been grafted into the vine, grafted into uh, this olive tree, this, this tree of life um, through Jesus Christ. But Romans 11 verse 23 says, And they also... This is the Jews. If they abide not still in unbelief, shall be graft in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature. Okay, so the Gentiles were considered like a wild olive tree. And were graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree. You wouldn't normally do that. Um, how much more shall these which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. So the picture here is that God one day is going to graft them straight back in. Verse 25 says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. In other words, don't get big-headed. Don't start to think, oh, look at us. We believed when they didn't. They had the Bible. We didn't. Look at how great we are compared to them. And Paul's saying, don't be ignorant. I don't want you to start being big-headed about this thing. He says in verse 25, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And verse 26 says, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, they shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, not the Gentiles, from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. God has grafted in the Gentiles. He's grafted us into uh, this, this tree of life because of Israel's unbelief. That's opened the door for us, essentially. Um, 
God knew that we were pig-headed and proud and arrogant and we wouldn't probably have done it if they hadn't uh, missed this calling. Um, but their loss is our gain. While the mystery Paul speaks about here is it, there will come again a day when Israel will believe in Jesus. And you know who's going to prepare them for this day? Moses and Elijah. When they come and testify for three and a half years in Jerusalem, they're going to testify against um, the Antichrist. They're going to testify for Christ again, as they've done already. And Israel will be restored again. Jew and Gentile will be joined one in Christ. Now look at the verse, the next verse, verse in Romans eleven twenty eight, and it says, and then concerning the, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. The Apostle Paul says, even though they may count themselves as your enemies, they may see that you are their enemies from their point of view, they are still beloved for their Father's sakes. God never reneges on his promises. And for the Father's sake, he will not renege with his promises about Israel. He will not give up on Israel and he will one day restore them. And they will be the shining jewel in a crown of his because he has not failed them. He will turn them, he will turn their hearts back again through these two individuals. And there's a great lesson in there for us, just to wrap things up this morning. There's an important lesson for us. There is a growing apostasy in the church today. The church is turning away from God more and more. And this apostasy is increasing at an ever-rapid pace. I shared with you a, a newsletter recently um, with some pretty startling statistics about the church in its current state. And the problem is the church is seeking to be relevant in this world. And as it seeks to be relevant in this world, as it seeks to appease the voices and the people crying out in this world, as it's trying to make everyone happy, happy, it's abandoning the word of God more and more and replacing it with the empty philosophies of the world. Our role today as the people of God, has never been more important. As we saw the degradation of the faith that came from hundreds of years of being uh, in Egypt, of being eroded, and we see that pattern in, in, uh, in Israel's life throughout the scriptures, over one or two generations, they begin to slip away from God and begin to fall into the traps of the world. The faith of the fathers is being eroded so much today and much of, the, much of the church has succumbed to apostasy. They have put aside the word of God. They have put aside its truth and replaced it with man's truth. We are part of a few who hold the line and we must hold the line and we must share the truth with our children and with those who are living in darkness. The scriptures teach that the wicked one, the Antichrist, will not reveal himself, will not come into this world, will not come out unless they come a falling away first. That falling away, by the looks of it, has already begun. And the numbers are confirming it more and more with each passing year. The falling away is is happening in our churches today. As I shared in our newsletter, less than one in five people who call themselves Christians actually believe the Bible. One in less than one in five people actually believe that their purpose is to love and obey God. Less than one in five people have a biblical worldview. Well, if they've put aside the word of God, if they've abandoned the purpose that God has stated in his word about what our existence is all about, then what are they replacing it with? Well, they're replacing it with man-made philosophies. What passes as Christianity in most churches today is not Christianity. 
It's a facade. It looks like Christianity on the outside, but it's not Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. So my challenge to us as Christians is just as Moses and Elijah had a, have a job to do in the future, to bring back, to draw the, the hearts of the children to the, back to the fathers, back to the foundations. We need to make sure that we hold the line here, that we are the, 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 the watchmen of this generation, that we, that we, with our children, with our parents, with our families, continue to share this truth and to hold fast to it. We live in perilous times, but our calling is the same as Elijah, to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. Do not neglect your jobs. Do not neglect your role in this world. We are the, the ambassadors that God has called us to. For that, to do that job properly, to be Christians, the Bible says that we are to hold fast to this truth. Hold fast. Hold tight. Love the Lord above all else. Put him first in all things and stand firm upon his word. God bless you all. I pray you have a, a wonderful week. Uh, I pray the Lord blesses you, that you continue to grow in the faith and that he continues to give you his grace, which will help you to grow. God bless you all. Looking forward to seeing you all again. Thank you.